ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there once more. Welcome to The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I was trying to think of something clever to say, Scott, and I just couldn't. Well, so that's that's all you get today. Yep. There's no problems with ever just, you know, announcing the actual title of the show and saying what it actually is we're supposed to be doing and then getting straight underway. It's, you know. It's so conventional. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, I, I I like your little brushes with virtuosity and surprise. Uh, but, um, you know, there's something nice about conventionality and conformism. As well, yeah. you you need it in order for the departures to have any kind of meaning. Yeah, it's true. That's exactly yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Is yeah? Is the rest of today's show going to be much of a departure? I'm not too sure about that because, in some ways, you could say that what we're doing today is getting right into the scaffolding of the moral life. In many respects, this is the most minefield of minefield shows that we could be doing because we're taking something that gives us an excuse to talk about what we really want to talk about. Uh, which is more or less the way. I mean, sometimes we really do try to be genuinely responsive to what's going on, but oftentimes we just look for a reason to discuss something that maybe is of genuine importance. And this particular topic is occasioned in many respects by a religious holiday that has just passed. We devote a fair degree of attention to Ramadan each year. It's For me, it's one of the highlights. We're not, and this year coincided with Easter. This year coincided with Easter, which was remarkable mm. in all. Anyway, I'm not. You're, you're not going to draw me in to that. Okay. It was something. So, so we've done Easter. We've done Ramadan. Uh, there's no reason then why we shouldn't turn our attention. I think to Yom Kippur, which is Judaism's uh, annual Day of Atonement, which was just this weekend past. And there's something kind of remarkable that's arresting about those commemorations, those gatherings, there's something incredibly familiar about it, but it's also long struck me that there's something incredibly strange about what takes place at Yom Kippur. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a gathering, uh, Waleed. It is, it is something else because uh, Yom Kippur is the culmination. It's the end point of the 10 days of repentance that begin with Rosh Hashanah, the the Jewish New Year, and that then culminate with this great act of mass repentance. And I think what's kind of remarkable about that act of repentance is that on the one hand, it's solidly, for want of a better term, it's vertical. It's directed entirely towards the divine. Uh, The worshipers who are gathered make a series of litanies, of confessions, of the wrongs done over the previous year. Not the specifics of the wrongs done, but a kind of blanket category, the blanket categories that could conceivably cover everything that could have been then. So these might be sins in word or sins in deed. These might be verbal sins or nonverbal sins, sins that have been committed through active acts of deception or just plain foolishness, sins that were committed openly or secretly, sins committed under duress or through one's own free will, sins that come under the blanket of causeless hatred, holding on to grudges or holding on to resentment, and sins that were committed through callous disregard. You lump everything together, and then at the end of each one of these litanies of confession, uh, the worshiper bangs their their closed fist against the left side of their chest over their heart and prays for all these, God of pardon, pardon us, forgive us, atone for us. So there's something kind of, you know, there's something deliberately ancient about this practice. It is an act of self-abasement, of purposeful humiliation before God, the statement that these are all the things that have been done. And I think what's important for our purposes is that no excuse or no self-justification is offered. In other words, it's not that I did this, but I didn't mean to, or I did this, but it was through inattentiveness rather than kind of willful malevolence. It's a kind of total exposure of the self and a total owning, if you like, a process of self-blame 
uh, it's almost as if under a kind of divine scrutiny, one points the finger back at oneself and says, this is what I've done. This is what I've said. There's no excuse. There's no justification. There's no alibi. There is simple ownership of all that has been done. And then there's the prayer for divine atonement, for divine forgiveness. Is there anything at that point, Waleed, you want to come in with? Uh, no, I thought of several things I was going to say, and then I thought, no, I think you've covered it. The, the question I have for you, and feel free just to say, sorry, this is a digression. I'm not going there. We'll do it later. I can hardly imagine me saying that, but you know, go on. No, no, I think you should if you feel that way. Um, so everything you've said there, it immediately resonates with the Islamic tradition. And I think the Islamic and Jewish traditions are so close to identical right. in so many ways That's right. that that just doesn't surprise me. I'm interested, though, in whether or not you find it a significant departure from the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, I mean, there is a tradition of confession within Christianity. Um, we associate it with the Catholic Church, but it's not solely Catholic. But, of course, Christianity is complicated by the notion of atonement through crucifixion, which, of course, is completely absent in Judaism and, and Islam. And so you have this thing within Christianity where it seems, at least to me as an outsider, that forgiveness doesn't just occur as a result of an acknowledgement and a sort of unmitigated acceptance of one's sinfulness. A price has to be paid somehow. Mm. And thus the crucifixion plays that role. So if tell me if I've got that wrong, but the the thing you've just described about Yom Kippur, is it possible within the Christian tradition? And therefore, is it something that kind of has purchase within the broader Western imagination insofar as it's derived in some way from Christianity? Look, I think that that's really interesting. Um, there is an immediate answer, I think, and then there's also a problem associated with what it is you've just raised. And that, in many respects, may well bring us precisely to the question at hand. So within Christianity, this annual process of atonement, if you like, is rendered singular. So there's no constant reoffering of an atoning act because that act of atonement and the sacrifice that accompanied it is supposed to be a singular event. Uh, once and for all. Once and for all. Um, but there are the annual forms of, if you like, repentance and abasement that more or less coincide with Lent than uh, Good Friday, you know, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter. But that— Yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm not talking about ritual so much as the concept. Yes, I know. I know. But but, but it's almost as if that is a—I don't know quite how to, how to say it. It is—it's it, a process that is modeled— on, in many respects, the 10 days of repentance that stretch from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. But at the same time, it's not as if one is asking for forgiveness that hasn't already taken place, but rather there is a process of a kind of self-abasement in the light of forgiveness that has already been conferred. Um, what is interesting, though, you raise the issue of confession, which, which is one thing, and, and here there is no singular Christian tradition concerning confession. Because one of the critiques that's often been raised among, let, let's call them sympathetic moral philosophers, in other words, moral philosophers who more or less uh, have cut their philosophical teeth within a broadly uh, Christian tradition. One of the concerns that's often been raised, not just with a kind of process of Christian general confession, but also to some extent the litany of confessions that one recites on Yom Kippur, is that each one of the confessions is purposefully general. You're not saying, this is what I did specifically to this person, and this is the injury that resulted. This is what Unlike I- Unlike in the confession booth. Precisely. In the confession booth, you enumerate. You're very specific. But again, there's a kind of artificiality about the confessional booth as well, which is where there's a great divide among certain, say, high church Protestants. Here, you'd you know, count someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and more kind of standard Catholics on the one hand and sort of more evangelical Christians on the other, where a general confession will do just fine, thank you. If one says, for all the things that I've done in thought, word, and deed, that more or less covers it. Uh, one of the criticisms is, if you don't enumerate what it is you've done, if you don't name it, and if you don't make that confession to the person to whom that wrong was committed, 
that there's something only ever partial in the confession. In other words, it becomes a form of evasion of one's moral responsibility. And then it takes away the opportunity for genuine forgiveness, quote unquote, genuine forgiveness. It's not that the divine is incapable of forgiving, but for forgiveness to be forgiveness, the person to whom the wrong has done must be involved in the act of conferring a degree of, let's use the term, absolution. I think there's something really striking about that, Waleed, because one of the things that does concern me in the very logic, and I'm not, I'm not critiquing the religious aspect, I'm critiquing, if you like, the moral implications of it, that concerns me about general confessions within Christianity, within general confessions within uh, the rite on Yom Kippur. And I, I will say something further about it in a moment. What concerns me in the use of the general litany of wrongs done, even if you cover all the bases, if I can put it that way, and the general act of forgiveness or pardon that's being sought is the whole thing takes place, if you like, within the soul of the person uh, performing the act of penitence. Everything happens internally. The act of confession is internal. Even if the words are spoken out loud, they're nonspecific. And the act of pardon that's received is internal. It comes directly from the divine. Rather than the admission of wrong done uh, being something that takes place between the guilty party and the party against whom that wrong was done. I suspect that's too partial a view, though. It is. Look, it is It is partly a partial view because there is something about Yom Kippur and what happens the day before Yom Kippur that to some extent mitigates it. So, I mean, there is something about the collective communal gathering of people who are guilty in common, starting off a new year, usually dressed in white, by confessing the misdeeds, the misdemeanors, the sins, the wrongs of the previous year. There is something about gathering together to do that that does emphasize, I believe, the communal aspect of it. And the day before Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is a day of fasting. The day before Yom Kippur, there's typically some kind of feast, some sort of gathering uh, during which uh, one both renews one's bonds with others and makes restitution for wrongs done if that restitution is possible. So there is something of the communal aspect that's involved. But I just worry that so much of our of the way that we think about, uh, say, blame or guilt, self-blame, self-guilt, is it something from which we want escape? It's something from which we want release. And then forgiveness is the means by which we seek that liberation. And what concerns me, Willie, just to be kind of perfectly frank, is what concerns me is that for guilt or blame to be the thing that we want release from and for forgiveness to be the means by which that guilt or that blame is liberated from us, is taken off us. To some extent, I think, it misses fundamentally the point of guilt, the point of blame. I don't want to necessarily associate those things. Let's just call guilt kind of self-blame or the ownership of one's blameworthiness. What it, what it misses, I think, is that the point of both blame, of being blamed, of acknowledging what one has done, and the point of forgiveness isn't mere liberation from guilt and its consequences, but ought to be something more like the restoration of moral community or the cultivation of a shared understanding of the wrong that has been done, of the way that the person who received that wrong, who experienced the wrong, experienced the wrong, and therefore the healing of the bonds of moral community itself. That that idea is present, I think, in the Hebrew term for penitence, teshuva, which quite literally means to turn back, to turn around, having gone astray, to return oneself home. So there is that idea, I think, buried in it. My concern well, is... Except, I think, I think you know, in the Arabic term is tawbah. Yeah, right? that's right. So, and it's the same notion, but the turning there is really towards God. So that's what repentance is mm. in the religious sense. It's a turning back towards God. And that act of repentance then invites a reciprocal act of God turning towards you, mm. which is why, I mean, linguistically, it's actually very rich in the Semitic languages because right. repentance and forgiveness kind of have a similar sort of linguistic root, right? And so you see them as two sides of, of, a, of a similar process. Mm. 
There are two sides of the process of reconciliation. There's the turning back and then there's the turning towards. That's right. Turning to, yeah. Yeah. Um, Although the turning back is also a turning towards. This is the, Mm, anyway. That's right. That's right. Let's leave that to one side for a moment. I think I see what you're saying, but I, I don't know that I can quite go along with the analysis for a couple of reasons. I will put this in Islamic terms only because I'm more familiar with it, mm. not because I think it's, you know, the, the prime reference in this conversation, which is, of course, about Yom Kippur. But there are different kinds of forgiveness being sought and there are different kinds of transgressions. So this idea that by seeking forgiveness in a more or less blanket way, what you are doing is avoiding owning up to the specifics and making forgiveness something that only needs to be vertical rather than horizontal. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's quite right. Mm. What actually is happening when you make these sorts of supplications is an acknowledgement of a kind of, I think you called it a humiliation before, it, it's an acknowledgement of a kind of pervasiveness of one's wrongdoing. It's that I acknowledge that the wrong I do is so frequent that it's almost innumerable. So so to name it is actually to miss most of it, right? That there is something about the forgetfulness of the human being, the on occasions the weakness of the human being that means that we will constantly be slipping into these things. It's not a way of avoiding specifics so much as an acknowledgement of our brokenness as, a, as an ongoing concern, right? And as something that we're constantly seeking to rectify, but that um, we will inevitably be falling short of. So I don't see that as a way of avoiding so much as a way of confronting the very underlying thing, which is the way human beings tend to be, mm. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't it, have, it, I mean, generally speaking, I don't have any issue with that, Willie. But I think the problem is, is that what is meant to be an act of, say, general uh, repentance or turning or penitence, that acknowledgement of a kind of more fundamental brokenness, that then becomes a kind of substitute for or an ersatz for, in many respects, the much harder moral work of tending to that space in between persons. And I think... No, and that's where I think you're precisely wrong Mm -hmm. because, and here I will only draw on the Islamic tradition, I would presume there's a very similar thing within Judaism, Mm -hmm. which is that there are different kinds of transgressions that require different kinds of pardoning. So there are sins, for example, that exist as a matter between you and God. You didn't fulfill this particular religious obligation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Then there are those that violate what in Arabic is, is called حقوق ibad, so, you know, the rights of the servants, the yes. rights of fellow human beings. And at least within the Islamic tradition, the understanding is that God's forgiveness is vast and it encompasses all kinds of wrongdoing. But where it involves a transgression of the rights of other human beings, that forgiveness is withheld because the right belongs to the other human being first. Mm. Now, they may choose to forgive. They may, I mean, there's all kinds of things that might go on there, but you don't get around that simply by appealing vertically. So the horizontal element of this is, is, to use the terminology that you've introduced, the horizontal element of it is actually crucial. Mm. And more to the point, perhaps, is that, it's only by the former, a sort of confrontation, like one confronting one's own self, even in the most private, generalised sort of ways. But by doing that as a constant process, it's actually that that makes the mending of horizontal yes, relationships possible. I agree. Because I agree. so much of what gets in the way... And here we can move, you can move directly into the political realm if you want, but only by introducing a language that feels very alien to the political realm. Mm. One of the biggest hurdles to successfully tending these horizontal relationships are spiritual diseases like ego, Mm. like 
unrestrained desire for things like could be power or whatever, diseases of the heart like envy, so on. You can, if I mean, we, we dare not really imagine this world because I guess we've never lived in it and it's probably unrealisable at a mass scale. But if you imagine a world without those vices, without envy, without ego, so on, the horizontal relationships will more or less take care of themselves. There might be moments of, I don't know, forgetfulness or inattentiveness or whatever, but they are easily mended. I, th- I think what's at the heart of this is is an understanding that actually social relationships, horizontal relationships, whatever you might want to call it, they are themselves epiphenomenal. That there are deeper spiritual or moral realities and that the state of our horizontal relationships ends up being an expression of those realities, of those deformities, if you like. The, and, and this is where I think the other aspect of a day like Yom Kippur or even just this practice of submitting one's self mm. and a, a, full a regular penitence of, of one's yeah. wrongdoing. Yeah. Mm. If you do that properly, I think you reach a point where in the end, the default setting you can only ever really have towards other people is one of compassion and empathy. Because whatever wrongness you, rather than judgmentalism, because whatever wrongness you may choose to see in them, indeed, whatever wrongness might be present, it should immediately remind you of your own. Mm-hmm. You're, you're constantly in this state of reckoning with your brokenness. And it's through that that a kind of rectification can, can happen. This is a world away, I think, from the notions that I think at least once relatively recently were quite popular of, you know, guilt being a useless emotion or, you know, these, these sorts of ideas, that these were just um, mechanisms by which people are controlled. Actually, I think they're mechanisms by which people move beyond control because they end up embodying a state that allows them to let go of things, to transcend certain things that actually keep human beings in a state of conflict doesn't always work, obviously. Very often it doesn't. But also, I will say this to you, Scott, and feel free to add to this or dispute it, whatever you like. You know when you meet someone who's done this. You know when you meet someone who's in this process constantly. There is something that they exude. We might call it a tranquility or something, but I don't feel like that quite captures it. There's a certain ease, and it exists even in difficult circumstances for them. You see the self-effacement of them, whereby what bothers them are not transgressions against them, but rather transgressions against others. In other words, what you see coming out from them is an ethic that were it to be replicated, would have all kinds of profound horizontal benefits. Mm -hmm. But it, it begins with the vertical. And so... I just worry a little about this idea that, well, the vertical somehow elides or obscures the horizontal. I think the idea here is actually Mm. that it's the thing that makes the horizontal possible. Okay. Can I just respond just on two points? And I really want to get to our guest because our guest is uh, illustrious. I don't fundamentally disagree with most of what you've just described. I don't think that the vertical concern necessarily, in other words, the vertical dimension of our offenses, necessarily elides the horizontal. I mean that all too often it can, and part of its internal condition or its internal corruptibility is that it does, which is to say the vertical concern can very quickly become a way of preserving the stability of the ego. Now, where you and I agree entirely is that the greatness, the moral significance of the litany of confessions that one finds on Yom Kippur is their absence of self-justification, is their absence of alibi, of ego, it's not just it's not just an evasion it is a performative 
uh, enactment of uh, one's commitment to contain, constrain the dominance of the ego in one's relationship to others. Where I'm not with you is in your description. I understand why you say it. And, and this is just a conversation for a much longer time. Where I'm not quite with you is in the description of our horizontal relationships, our social, our interpersonal relationships, the tending of the space in between human beings as epiphenomenal. Because there is a way in which both blame and forgiveness can take place richly. I would almost get to the point of almost transcendentally between persons when there is a fundamental acknowledgement of the way in which my behavior, my conduct, willful or not, enacts, inflicts a certain wrong on the life of another person, and that the wrong that they've experienced then has a prior claim uh, on me, such that there's no way of moving beyond that wrong without arriving at a full recognition of why that was wrong, the extent to which it was wrong, and the proper response on my part to the wrong as it was experienced by the other person. So, yeah, let me, but, but there's no way of articulating that wrong without some basis on which it can be understood. But and here's my point, Waleed. That wrong, the extent to which it was wrong, can't be articulated in response to, or doesn't necessarily, this is where you and I are, 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 are different on all sorts of fronts, I think. It doesn't necessarily need to be articulated along some kind of vertical violation of divine uh, precepts or whatever else, but rather the extent to which it was wrong, what it is that made it wrong, then becomes necessarily articulated by the person against whom that wrong was done. And here I think it's important to introduce the idea, the fundamental idea of remorse as a kind of full moral recognition of what it was in what I did that was experienced as wrong by that other person. And the massive moral difference, I think, between remorse on the one hand, which is a pained recognition of what one has done, versus regret, which is a kind of general, I mean, uh, Vladimir Jankelevich wonderfully famously referred to regret as the most insipid of all moral emotions. It simply regrets that something bad happened rather than fully owning one's agency. And what I worry is that so much of our language surrounding blame and surrounding the requirement of forgiveness can very quickly veer into that kind of insipid realm of general wrongdoing and the desire to be released from one's culpability yeah, but rather problem, than moving well, rather than moving to that more important domain, which is the cultivation of remorse as the proper, if you like, fully-fledged recognition of the wrong in which was uh, was done and the necessary way in which that recognition is the precondition to any mending of the relationship between us. Sure. The latter part makes sense. But what I fear in the way you formulated it is that it renders wrong, wrongdoing, as an entirely subjective experiential phenomenon. And at that point, it becomes immediately contestable. And that's what we're seeing. Hmm. That, I think, is what we're going to have to take up with our guest. All right. Our guest is Miranda Fricker. She's the Julius Silver Professor of Philosophy at New York University, where she's also co-director of the New York Institute of Philosophy. She's the author of a groundbreaking seismic book called Epistemic Justice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing. Her current research is on the ethics of blame and forgiveness. Miranda, it's a joy to welcome you to the minefield. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, So you've heard the terrain that we've tried to stomp all over. Uh, you've heard some of the... Yes, it's fascinating. So where do you want to take us? Well, I I just felt like I, I was dying to interrupt and chip in with, the, with the, a thought that may not add... I don't know if this adds anything. And I'm I myself very sort of secular and horizontal, I suppose, in my approaches to these things, but also very fascinated by the vertical and religious kind of casts of uh, repentance and what it achieves. So I was really interested in the different perspectives you're bringing to it. But one aspect of it, I wonder if this is right from a religious point of view, is that one of the reasons why the specifics of the wrongs one may have done in the year may not be relevant to the kind of annual ritual of repentance and atonement and so on is that it's one's relationship with God that one is aiming above all to 
repair. And there's a sense in which the specifics of one's behavior to one's fellow humans over the year aren't entirely relevant to that. Whereas with horizontal interpersonal forgiveness, it's specifically the human relationships that one's damaged in, letting down a friend, lying to someone, being unfaithful, whatever it might might be, is those relationships one's seeking to patch up. So I just wondered if that was a useful aspect to some of the differences. You said near the beginning, Scott, there was something kind of strange about the collective ritualistic performance of it. And I, if one thinks of it as about the relationship with God, perhaps that makes it seem a little less strange in a certain way. But I, I do myself feel very resistant to the idea that humans are broken. I mean, whether it's like doctrine of original sin or some other kind of brokenness. I don't think I believe it. I don't find it helpful. I think that human beings do loads of wrong stuff all the time and we are thoroughly non-ideal creatures in lots of ways. And especially if you look at real horrors in the world, one, you know, I can hardly bring myself to say what I'm about to say. So if we can think of some more more ordinary wrongs rather than the real horrors and violences in the world. I kind of like our flawed nature. I mean, if I was a playwright or a screenplay writer, I love our flawed nature. I love that someone has too much ego in one context and that that's kind of the flip side of some other better thing they might do, like, a you know, have a creative kind of drive that leads them to be egotistical sometimes and sometimes not, that very often people's vices are kind of the flip side of something else that we can like or appreciate. And there's a kind of little tragic drama in that itself that, you know, that's one of the ways in which I suppose we're we're bound to go wrong is because there's always pros and cons of every character trait and put us in different contexts with different sort of pressures on us. Something that's good in some contexts is going to come out bad in another. And that's kind of our fate, but I find it a little bit beautiful rather than just wanting to describe us as broken because of it. Yeah. I'm actually really glad you made that point, Miranda, because I I wouldn't disagree with probably any of the way you described it, maybe broken is too strong a word. And I certainly don't want to communicate an original sin idea because that's avowedly something that Muslims and I think Jews do not have. Mm, that's, that's one right. of the the key mm. differences um, between the two. Um, the flawed nature of human beings in the sense that we carry these flaws that are more or less insurmountable, that we, you know, we, we don't really reach perfection, um, but we can always be trying to search for it. I think is actually even theologically right in the sense, I know in the Islamic tradition, there's this idea that had human beings not sinned, they'd be replaced with a species that did because they would just be angels then. And it's the very capacity of human beings to go wrong. It's the very fact that they deal with these traits that when they are imbalanced or they are expressed in the wrong context, become vices, but in other contexts would be virtuous. It's that very fact that allows human beings to transcend in a moral sense the status of the angels, but also fall well, well, yeah. well below it. That these two things are necessary, they, they necessarily exist at the same time. That's that's the thing that makes the human being special. But it's also a fact that we're constantly falling short. And so the brokenness, maybe the brokenness I'm referring to is really more one of a spiritual brokenness, a, a sense that the human being recognises that and is in some sense, humbled by that fact Mm. before God and, I would say, before other people. Because this is the horizontal point I was making before, that when you really come to recognise your own flaws, it just becomes hard to summon the effort to be preoccupied with others. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if one needs the vertical in order to get there. At least I'd like to think that it's possible to have a really, really fully internalized, you know, and humbled sense of one's own flawedness and the difficulties of not going morally wrong in life. And that that would be enough to furnish a kind of compassionate and open-hearted attitude to others' wrongs so that one doesn't pay undue attention. I I totally accept the point about the, the vertical creating that attitude for the horizontal. But I, I wonder if it's necessary. I, I hope it isn't because I, I don't have a relationship with God. So I, I, I'm really hoping that I've got some other resources to draw. And I feel like there's a certain kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost, almost a sort of romanticism about the beauty of human beings and our flawedness and how we are 
all the same in some sense. So, you know, but that might, that might be enough to create the compassion. Can I ask you, Miranda, one of the things about your most recent work that I found frankly captivating is the way that you have examined, I mean, we are talking, after all, about blame and forgiveness as two of the fundamental responses that we have to both the wrong that we do in the world and to the experience of being wronged by others. One of the things that you've done, though, is to trace and track the way that even in those most natural of human responses, and human responses that I think are also responding to something vital in the moral life. I mean, a world without blame, uh, without the ability to call someone to account, to hold them to a degree of scrutiny, to try to persuade them to a recognition of what it is that they've done and the way in which they've not just rent the general social fabric, uh, but also inflicted something upon a fellow human being. Uh, But also forgiveness as one of the ways in which we maybe move beyond mere resentment or mere moral judgment uh, and simply live with that fabric. These are natural things, and yet for all of their naturalness, there are also myriad ways in which both blaming too much, giving it over to excess, forgiving too easily, or in fact demanding to be forgiven and thereby uh, not understanding its underlying nature. I mean, the work that you've done points to the way in which the goodness, the rightness of these responses, the naturalness of them, doesn't prevent them from being corrupted. And yet their corruption doesn't prevent them from being indispensable, if you like, to the moral life. Yes. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I do take a sort of fairly naturalistic view of these things. And that wouldn't require one to say, oh, well, we naturally blame. And fortunately, a lot of the time we forgive. So we're, we're just stuck with those practices then. I think, you know, there's an awful lot of things that are very deep in human nature that we can step back from and try to grow out of, as it were, try to evolve and grow culturally out of. I mean, the impulse to violence would be one sort of example. But I hope that one can, in taking a naturalistic stance towards blaming and forgiving, we're able to just step back and just take an ethical point of view. You know, do these? What good do these practices do? Are they ethically good? What what forms can they take? Is there one thing that counts as blaming, or are there actually lots of different concepts of blame and different styles of of blaming in practice that we've seen over different times in history and perhaps under different religious ideas and just different cultural ethoses and which ones do we like? Which ones Which ones are good ones and which ones are lousy ones? And in, in the case of blame, I find myself, you know, wanting to acknowledge very much that a lot of the time people go in for retributive forms of blame. So the idea that because someone has done this wrong deed, they deserve to be harmed in some way or deserve to suffer in some way. And I myself find that a pretty empty idea. It's a very natural impulse if you've been morally wounded to want to get them back, get even or whatever it might be. But I don't think that's a kind of blaming that does any good at all. I mean, it might bring some brief satisfaction, but it's basically just sort of vendetta disguised as a moral response. I think it's not our only option by any means. I think there can be styles of blaming which aim at something else. And this is what you were sort of alluding to uh, just now. I I would like to think that there's a style of blame we could we could call communicative blame. It doesn't really matter what we label it. But where what I'm aiming to do, if someone has morally wounded me, if I blame them, I come out with it and I communicate how I feel about how they've treated me. And I'm trying to bring them to what? I'm trying to bring them to understand the moral significance of what they've done. And if I'm right about the moral significance of what they've done, for instance, it's a betrayal of our friendship, then in effect, I'm trying to get them to grasp that moral truth in the only appropriate or, or the only way they can if they are to fully grasp it, which is to grasp it as in, as a sort of remorseful cognition. And I've always really loved Raymond Gator's understanding of the role of remorse in moral life and that remorse is a a cognitive state, an emotional state which tells us something about the world so that if I had really let a friend down badly, just knowing that I'd really let them down badly and yeah, I betrayed our friendship, that's not enough. If I don't feel it in the mode of pained awareness of what I've done, the mode of remorse, then I'm not really getting it. And it seems to me a 
a good aim, ethically helpful, constructive, transformative aim for, for blame is to communicate the wrong done in a way which brings the wrongdoer to a remorseful grasp of what they've done. But of course, I might be wrong. I might be overreacting to how they've treated me. And then we need it to be in the form of dialogue. So I I express my blame to my friend and I say, you've betrayed our friendship. How could you do that? And they say, well, you know, lighten up a little. I mean, I'm really sorry for what I did, but I wouldn't call it a betrayal of our friendship. And so through conversation, we come to a shared understanding of what's gone on between us. And I, I like to think that that aim of achieving shared communicative understanding of what's gone on is an appropriate aim for blaming. And it's a morally constructive one and not a sort of punitive, certainly not a retributive one. Sorry, just to pick up one point there, Miranda. I mean, one of the things that I think is so important then, I'm not sure how helpful it is to reintroduce the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of both the sort of blame and guilt and forgiveness. But one of the things that I find striking is in this kind of moral encounter that you sketch out, where blame is on the one side, in other words, the singular articulation of the wrong done as experienced by the one to whom that wrong has been done or against whom. And then the appropriate response, if you like, the morally symmetrical response of remorse. Oh, my God, I didn't think of that. Now I can see. Or the dialogical response, um, that's, I, I think you're blowing things up. This is where you've misconstrued or this is where your experience uh, doesn't grasp whatever. It begins with the singularity of the description on the part of the person against whom that wrong is done. In other words, no general category, no broad classification of what has been done or even no translation into a more sterile or general vernacular quite does justice to the properly construed moral act of communicative blame. It has to be in the voice of the person. It has to be a reflection of that person's life and the singularity of their experience of the wrong. And I mean, one of the things that we're struggling with in Australia, and we have been for so very long, it's hearing properly the singularity of the wrong that was experienced by the First Nations of this land and the appropriate forms of remorse that that wrong then requires. This is where I think the singularity of that encounter is so very important as the precondition for, again, something like remorse properly construed. Yes, I, I really agree. I mean, I even if even if the person wronged were to use as part of their communication some fairly abstract or general terms, it's still just just what you said. Still, the the encounter between the person wronged and the the person or entity that's done the wronging, it's a really kind of face to face confrontation, isn't it? What did I do to you? <laughs> what does it mean to you? What was your experience? And sometimes communication is hampered by the fact that the two parties don't share enough experiences or share enough concepts and conceptions of the meaning of things for that communication to go well. And I think that, you know, other work I've talked about kinds of what I call epistemic injustice, and one of them is what I call hermeneutical injustice, which is simply a situation where for reasons broadly of a kind of marginalization, one group is typically stuck with trying to communicate experiences to another group where they need that other group to understand what their experience has been. And yet the concepts required are not possessed by the other group, but only by the complainant. And so they can't get their point across. You know, they know exactly what it meant to them that these things were done. And they can say it till the cows come home, but it's not really being fully understood. And so then you know, one conversation is enough. It's a long, long cultural conversation where the deeper moral meanings of things have to kind of permeate more slowly. But also more microscopically, I've experienced the kind of thing you're talking about, Miranda, where it's like, there's just no way for me to explain this to you without going back a long, long way, <laughs> right? And yeah. 
trying to find some kind of, if not agreement, then at least conceptual mm. understanding on some basic ideas. What I would say, though, is that that communication is impossible the more mass the communication is. It's surprising mm. how possible it becomes when it's one-on-one. And here I would perhaps bring Scott's example of Australia's relationship with the wrongs done to our First Nations people as an example. We're going through a referendum process at the moment. It's getting cantankerous. It's in its way becoming dehumanising, and that's because it isn't a human interaction. It's, it's a mediated, abstracted political one. And what yeah. happens there is someone might say, here is a wrong I've experienced. But when they're saying that as a collective and they say it in a particular way, there's another collective receiving that that says, well, I feel wronged by your wrong. I feel wronged by the allegation you're making now. And what do you do then? Because, well, both parties can now claim they've been wronged, right? You see this in a really crude form when people object to allegations of racism, right? They say, well, Mm. you're accusing me of racism, but I feel so wronged and violated by that mere accusation. And then you get a response saying, what, so racism doesn't matter, only allegations do, and you get this conversation that just spirals out of control to nowhere constructive. I tend to find, and maybe, Scott, this is something that came out in the conversation we had with Stan Grant, however long ago it was, Mm. that sort of exchange doesn't happen one-to-one. That's right. Even with people who might have very different worldviews. And I think what that is, is if you're interested in horizontal relationships... The, the full reality of the person with whom you're having that horizontal relationship or even horizontal interaction is just easier to grasp. Actually, what's happening when we talk about these things politically is not a horizontal relationship at all, but rather one that just exists in the ether. It has no direction, really. And it's not anchored to anything particularly. And for that reason, we might think we're trying to deal with or tend to horizontal relationships, but it strikes me, Miranda, that we're, we're doing anything but that, really. And in fact, sorry, Miranda, just yeah. before you you respond, let me add one small footnote and then I'll just give the floor to you. The other thing that's characterized some of the referendum debate is an argument along these lines. Yes, we regret the past, but we've paid all this money. We've done all these things. Isn't it just time you forgave us? In other words, there's a kind of demand for forgiveness, uh, which I think mm. mistakes the whole political logic of remorse in the first place. Anyway, over to you. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And there are so many sort of multiple difficulties in these situations. I mean, one of the difficulties is about levels of, you know, whether one's talking to individuals or, you know, what's the entity? And so are we talking collectives? Are we talking states? Are we talking the past version of a state or continuing version of a state which continues to do certain things that are seen as continuous past more dramatic wrongs? And so I think you sometimes there are communicative problems that are fueled by almost like a, a confusion of who or what is being blamed. Mm. And blame, you know, I, I think of, I don't know how, how appropriate this is to the Australian context at the moment, but I, I tend to think of blame as, you know, a highly directed and targeted attitude of finding fault, but it tends to be accompanied with a certain kind of emotional spike designed to get some attention. And then the question is, what form of blame is most useful? And then my answer is like, well, the, the kind that's communicative and that aims at achieving shared understanding. But that that works well in situations where it's very clear who the agent was or is. And that can be very clear at collective levels and at state levels when it isn't also spread over time. But with historic wrongs, which may be also seen as continuous with continuing wrongs, but then there's a different, because there's a long sort of diachronically drawn out pattern of different wrongs of injustice, which have particular horrors at their origins, but then sort of carry on in different ways. Somebody might think, I don't really know what I think, but somebody might think that actually rather than the kind of bid for 
remorse and guilt feeling that is the proper aim of blame, really shame of being associated with a state or a collective or, you know, part of a government that ever did these things is a more appropriate response. Shame can be something one feels in response to being blamed for something, but one can also feel shame without any need for being found to be part of the culprit. If one is just associated with a nation state that did terrible things to the ancestors of people who are now one's peers and fellow citizens, shame might be the more appropriate, the more, and it's sort of in the, in the right register to uh, take account of these kinds of wrongs. I, I don't know. It's just a, just a suggestion. I just fear with that, Miranda, that shame ends up with the same problems as blame in that context. Because you end up with mm. the same sort of discourse, don't you? Why should I be ashamed? I didn't do anything. I had nothing to do with this. I'm just trying to go about living my life amidst a cost of living crisis. You know, shame becomes just another way of weaponizing guilt to people who want, who see the world that way. Yeah, but uh, but Walid, I think yeah. here here's where one of Raymond Gator's kind of crucial insights really helps us. We also take a degree of unseemly national pride in things that we had absolutely nothing to do with. We have no qualms about saying we in response to some great achievement or some international recognition. And the only way that we can prevent that kind of national we from being debased into sort of what, what Ray you know, calls a form of almost idolatrous uh, jingoism is by similarly opening ourselves up to the feeling, to the ability to feel, the capacity to feel national shame along the lines that Miranda just discussed of being associated with something that ought rightly to make a morally sensitive or historically conscious person uh, weep or at least be attentive uh, to those who continue to suffer the lingering effects of historic injustice. Yeah, I mean, I mean someone who's simply unwilling to even acknowledge association of that kind, it's going to be very, very hard to sort of win them around to think that they have any part in this. But if one can get across the idea that there's a certain kind of appropriate ethical and political response to things that the nation state to which one belongs has done in the past, which might be coloured by shame and where there is a pathway forward to actually try and be part of finding ways to make amends and so on. That's that's a much more sort of positive model. And it, it, it at least provides an answer. I mean, this is really what made me set in the first place. It at least provides an answer to someone who says, I didn't do anything wrong. The answer is, yeah, I know, you're, but you're associated with a collective body that did. We're uh, associated with it in the now because we're citizens of this nation and we're associated with it historically because it's all been, as it were, the way our social world has developed since then is all connected up. And so it's sort of a way of vindicating their first knee-jerk defensive thought, which is that I haven't personally done anything, you know, if it's true. Well, that can be true even while one still needs to step up and take one's part in the collective responsibility for these historic roles. We are out of time, I'm afraid. Oh, sorry. Miranda, did you...? No, no, out of time, that's fine. Okay. Well, it's not fine, because I'd really rather just keep talking to you forever. Maybe we can just keep you on the line and just... (laughs) Just, you know, have a chat to you whenever we feel the need. Um, Miranda Fricker is the Julius Silver Professor of Philosophy at New York University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We've been greatly enriched by her presence this week. uh, And we'll see you next. Can I ask you both one question? I'm, I'm looking into the mind of our producer. Uh, as I say this, I suspect that this will tip over into the podcast version. But can I just put a question to you both? So we've been talking about the importance uh, in, say, the religious life of a kind of annual litany of confessions, if we think about of Yom Kippur, the kind of realignment of oneself and thereby the, the humbling of the ego. Uh, well, Lady, you were also talking about the uh, regular, consistent practices of a kind of a of, of a form of realignment, uh, or of confession, or of penitence, as a way again of kind of keeping the ego in check. If it's not too long a bow to draw, 
And if we can think about jingoism as a kind of inflation of the national ego. Mm. Should we have national days of penitence? Yes. Should we have a kind of national equivalent of something like Yom Kippur, precisely not as kind of groveling self-abasement, but as a cultivation, and, and I use the word cultivation deliberately, you know, the, 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 the fashioning, the production of a kind of national common culture that is willing to tend towards not just regret for the past, but for remorse, that's willing to acknowledge this is what we did. Yes, we did great things, but we also did these terrible things. Something like something like national penitence as the cultivation of a disposition to be remorseful and therefore to be attentive to the specifics of the wrongs that have been done and the ability to hear then the articulation of those wrongs in the particular voices of those who were uh, maybe not the specific persons who were wrong, but those who continue to carry on that legacy. Is there anything in that, Miranda? I guess it, you know, whether um, it's certainly an entirely, I agree, it's an entirely intelligible idea, whether it's, as it were, you can pull it off in a particular, you know, bring bring people to <laughs> take part in it and so on and make it kind of work is a, is an, you know, a, a sociological question in the now, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little. I'm a. I have less taste than both of you do for this very general penitence thing. Mm, mm. <laughs> I totally, you know, I want to. I hear what's being said, and I, I see the value to people who participate in it, but. I like my penitence targeted. I want to. Mm. I want people to be sorry for specific things. Mm. And I absolutely heard Waleed's point that there's a there's a sense in which if you can achieve the much more general state of humility of the vertical penitence, that will help one achieve it horizontally. I I buy that. I hope that it's not a requirement to achieve it horizontally. And I just feel it's a little bit self-punishing, honestly. I mean, penitence, being flawed is one thing. Penitence, remorse, this is for for wrongdoing. It's much more of a serious thing. And I worry that it's there's a there's a kind of really unhealthy, self-punishing, self-hating side to this idea. It's not really for me, honestly, but I, I recognize absolutely its value for others. I um, I would just say, Scott, I see the logical elegance of your idea. I don't think it works, and I don't. And this is where I think the vertical dimension is really important. It it works with a vertical dimension with an individual seeking forgiveness for their own wrongdoing, because it's confined to that vertical relationship. It's my wrongdoing. I own it. And I seek forgiveness from the one who can grant it. Once you remove the vertical relationship and you try to socialize it or collectivize it, a different dynamic hoves into view immediately, which is actually, I'm now seeking to articulate the wrongdoing of other people, really. I may have some association with it by the accident of my birth, but it's actually other people did wrong things. And this is, I think, one of the big problems with the way our debates in Australia proceed on all sorts of things, actually. You could even say climate change, but like Mm -hmm. with, with something like this, when people say, I feel ashamed, they very rarely say they feel ashamed of something they've done. What they say is, I feel ashamed of something someone else did. And the fact that I feel ashamed is evidence of my virtue, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. And if you don't feel ashamed, then that's evidence of your vice. And so this it just becomes a contested thing. What might begin as an act of national penitence actually becomes an act of horizontal blaming, I think. And because there's no vertical relationship in this matter, I mean, if there is, that would be a very different... I don't know how we conceive of that exactly, but that would be a very different conversation. But because there's no vertical relationship... There's no one who can grant the forgiveness. 
it can't really be sought in a way that avoids that that problem mm. of contestation mm. of of friction, and we would merely devolve into camps about it, where one camp accuses the other camp of being grossly wrong-headed and even morally monstrous. Nice. Uh, I would just point out that one of the things that happens on Yom Kippur is is a uh, a reading of the book of the prophet Jonah, uh, which culminates in the mass penitence of a city in the face of recognition of wrongs done. Mm, but there's a vertical relationship there, That's isn't exactly there? Right. That's exactly right. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.